Welcome to Warrington Bible Fellowship. Pastor John is preaching from Luke 22, the first 23 verses today, and he's entitled the sermon, The Not-So-Last Supper. Now, we're all familiar with the Last Supper, but was it really the last one? I think you'll find his answer to that question very interesting. Meanwhile, be sure to subscribe to our channel so you won't miss any future videos, and uh, like this video if you want to, and Share it as well so that others can hear a fascinating answer to a fascinating question. God bless you. I'm going to ask you to turn to Luke chapter 22. We're going to be in verses 1 through 23. I don't know how you grew up, but I grew up in northeast Ohio my grandfather's house, we lived with him, and the families would gather together for the holiday meal, whatever holiday it was, and I, I, I could never understand why there was all this food. There was, I mean, you know, on Thanksgiving, there'd be a turkey, there'd be a ham, there'd be some beef for people that wanted beef, and, and we would, they would have to pull the table out in the dining room and put the the inserts in, just to get all the food on them. By the time they got all the food on the table, there was nowhere to sit. So we, we would end up sitting, you know, in the sofa in the living room and, and that sort of thing. And there was just this incredible amount of food. Everybody brought food. And we would be full. And my dad, my dad would say, well, you know, there's always more. There's always more. Because we would end up eating leftovers for weeks. You know, we're trying to make them look different, put them in a pie or something, but, but we were eating the same food for weeks. And, and what I didn't realize is my, my dad was giving me a, a universal truth. I, I don't know if he understood it completely, but that's our truth for today. There's always more. And, and that truth comes to you in a teaching about the Last Supper. So we're going to think about this a little bit, okay? Last week we talked about how we can see things through eternal eyes, that we should have an eternal perspective on everything that we say and everything that we do, everything in our lives, and not let the troubles of the world distract us from what we've been called to do, which is we're called to be messengers of the gospel of Christ. We just had a, a great commissioning service for Veritas Church downstairs. The elders gathered down there and we we prayed over Zach and over the, the uh, congregation to send them into the community as messengers of the gospel. We have that same calling. And so we should always keep in mind, and in the final analysis, I, I mean, when we all stand before our maker and our judge, in the final analysis, the only thing that's important are souls. Everything else is going to be gone. And all the things that, that, that I look at in my life and I think is vitally important, I need this, I need this, I need that. The only thing we really need to survive that moment and not be cast into the lake of fire is Jesus Christ. And what Jesus Christ is concerned about are souls. The only thing that will remain. Now this week we're going to get uh, another reminder that there are times when things look pretty dire uh, but God has blessings for those in store, uh, for those who believe in him. Uh, so for them, the end is never final. So our, our sermon title today is the Not-So-Last Supper. 
And this is part one. We'll have part two next week. We've got four significant events that happened in our passage. We see the plot against Jesus in verses one and two. We see the payment uh, for the plot in verses three through six. We see the preparations for this final meal. Final, I, I put in quotation marks, in verses 7 through 13. And we see the Passover meal in verses 14 through 23. So let's take a look at this, this plot. Uh, verse 1, uh, Luke 22, verse 1. Now, the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. Now, Kelly just read that entire passage uh, explaining the Passover. What we need to remember is, is that there's a, a, an incredible amount of details to that, that first Passover meal. Uh, God had a very specific list of, of things that he wanted his people to do in order to be protected from the angel of death, which was going to move over Egypt. Uh, so, and it, it was, that became a celebration every year of the, the freeing of God's people from slavery. And so it says in verse 2, uh, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. So the Passover's coming. Um, the, the, the leaders are plotting against Christ. They want, now, it's not just trying to discredit him. Now they want to kill him. They, they want to find a way to put him to death. And it says they feared the people. So these are the chief priests and scribes, the religious leaders of the day. What are they afraid of? They're the leaders of the country. What are they afraid of? Well, you know, we see in chapter 20 that Jesus could answer their questions. They had difficulty answering Jesus' questions. Uh, he had humiliated them time and time again. They've embarrassed themselves. And, and now the people, the general population, and this is important to remember, the people are on Jesus' side. He's a celebrity. They're following him. And the leaders, the leaders are supposedly the ones who have the authority. They're the ones that have the power, yet they're afraid of the people. They're afraid of the people. They're afraid of the Romans. They're embarrassed by Jesus. So they begin to plot against Jesus. He becomes the focus of all of their insecurities and all of their doubts. In the final analysis, those leaders are incredibly weak. They think, they think they're the most powerful. And the thing about weak people is that they begin to plot about how to get their power back. They begin to devise ways to get their influence back. They think they're the strongest people in the scene, but in reality, they're showing that they're the weakest people. So their plot is a desperate attempt to regain control. We ever do that? Do we ever feel like things are spiraling out of control and we got to do something to get control back? Have you ever been at a meeting where there's chaos all over and somebody stands up and says, we need to do something. We need to get this under control. It's, it's a motivation in our lives that pops up from time to time when, when people are doing things we think they shouldn't do or things that, that we don't approve of. Instinctively, we want to get in there and fix the situation. If I can just tell them 
what they're doing wrong, they'll stop doing that and I can be comfortable again. That's what these guys are doing. They want their power back. They want their control back. And the truth of the matter is if these leaders had simply listened to Christ, simply trusted Him, things might turn out a little bit differently for them. And as it is, their plot requires them to get others involved. Well, how are they going to do that? How are we going to get other people involved? (laughs) That takes us to the payment. Money. Money. Starting with verse 3. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers about how he might betray him to them. Now, we don't know the nuts and bolts on how all this happened. All we know is that Satan had an influence on Judas. I will tell you this, though. If Judas wasn't susceptible to that particular temptation, Satan would never have been able to motivate him. There is no such thing. Does anybody remember Flip Wilson? Am I aging myself? Thank you, Bob. We'll park our walkers on the back later on and get together. But Flip Wilson had this character, and, and he played this, this woman named Geraldine, and, and her, her catchphrase was, the devil made me do it. The devil doesn't make you do anything. The devil doesn't make you do anything you don't want to do to begin with. We can't blame our sin on somebody else, and neither can Judas. So we don't know the nuts and bolts of what happened here other than to see that Jesus was close to Jesus. For nearly, Judas was close to Jesus for nearly three years. For nearly three years and he never really believed what Jesus was teaching. He never really trusted Jesus. And we see that someone can appear to be a follower. They're going to have all the hallmarks of it but ultimately can be more interested in what is in it for them then what is in it for the gospel? What is in it for Christ? More interested in what's in it for them than in being transformed, than in being made like Jesus. Take Jesus uh, is, is the influence here, but apparently Satan has a greater influence because he takes advantage of Judas's self-interest. And Judas succumbs to that temptation to take things into his own hands and make something happen. Now, whether it was the money or the desire to control the situation, Judas is struggling with the same issues that the religious leaders are struggling with. He wants control. He wants power. He wants, maybe more than anything else, he wants to be right. Is that a motivation? Are we ever motivated by the desire to be right? to show the people around us that they're wrong. He's driving Judas. He wants to be right more than he wants to be holy. And he finds, he finds that he's got company. <laughs> Just think about this for a second. Judas is motivated by his own self-interest. And he finds people that sympathize with them. It's a danger of only listening to people that agree with us. 
and lead you down the wrong path. He wants to be right more than he wants to be holy. And look what happened in verse 5. And they, the religious leaders, were glad. They agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Now, again, I want to, I want to remind you that the people, for the most part, the people favor Jesus. They're following him. We're, we're not sure of the crowd's motivations yet. But to the general population, Jesus has become popular. This is a key to the story, if we're going to understand everything that unfolds over the next 48 hours in the narrative here. Looking at the bigger picture, with the cross looming near, it's right on the horizon, Jesus is opposed outside his camp, and he is opposed inside his camp now. We see that there's a cosmic element of, of Everything that's being involved here, this is the setting. Heaven is being opposed by hell. Good is being opposed by evil. God is being opposed by Satan. The lines are being drawn. The battle is about to engage. And it seems like the end is near. And the most pivotal moment in the history of all mankind revolves around self-interest and money. Think about that. And meanwhile, as the Passover is upon them, how will Jesus respond to all these events? And that takes us to our, our third significant event, the preparations. And what, what Luke wants us to see here as we move forward, and we're taking baby steps at this point. Luke is very careful to draw each moment out so that we can learn everything that we need to learn from it. Is that in spite of these incredible forces and evil powers being arrayed against Jesus Christ, he remains in control of everything. Everything that's going on. Jesus is not the victim of any of this. He's the sovereign Lord over all creation. And he puts this all on display as he begins to explain the details of preparing for the Passover. Verse 7, then came the day of unleavened bread in which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Now, again, we, we heard Kelly read this earlier, and we need, to, we need to look at these next couple verses through the eyes of a Jew in the first century. The festival of unleavened bread lasted seven days. It started on the 5th of Nisan, Abib, uh, sometime around March or April. It was a celebration of the beginning of the harvest. And on the seventh day, there would be this feast. The people would eat unleavened bread for the first six days and, and then a lamb would be slaughtered, the Passover lamb. And all of this was designed to commemorate God's deliverance from Egypt of his people. So we're, what we're about to see is the earthly deliverance from Egypt was just a shadow of what God was going to do in Christ in Jerusalem in the first century. This was pointing towards God's ultimate deliverance of his people. Verse 8, so Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. So the first thing that we need to see is that there's a very specific way that God wants us to honor him. 
And, and Jesus is going to lay this out. He's going to do this. Go and prepare the Passover that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? Verse 9. And he said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters. And tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where's the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he told them. And they prepared the Passover. Now pay attention to all the detail here. We can talk about the guy with the water and everything, but the fact of the matter is that everything Jesus describes happens just the way he describes it. And this is in Jerusalem, which was packed with maybe a million and a half people for the Passover. The detail is important, maybe more important than it seems. Not only is Jesus showing that he's in control of the situation, he's in control of everything that's about to happen, it all falls under his Father's plan and under his Father's authority, but Jesus is about to redefine the Passover for the Jewish people. It's celebrated as a moment of, in the history of Israel that was marked by death and rebirth. All the symbolism is there. A lamb had to be slaughtered to protect God's people, and the result was their deliverance as a free nation into the wilderness. God demonstrated His control over that situation And he's doing the same thing here. Every detail is under his guidance and falls under his authority. Nothing is left to chance. Nothing is out of order. God is not sitting in heaven going, oh, no, no, don't go to Jerusalem. They want to kill you. It's part of his plan. And the preparations are conducted by the disciples. They're participating in the plan. They're doing what they're told. So they're doing exactly what they're told, and we find out that all the details and all the outcome are in the hands of the Father. The disciples prepare a spotless lamb to memorialize a meal that symbolizes freedom as another spotless lamb is being ready to bring permanent and eternal freedom to all those who believe in him. Now, that takes us to our fourth significant event, the Passover. Understand the context. We've labored to explain it, but no Jew would have celebrated the Passover without thinking about Moses, without thinking about Exodus, the, the, the protection of God, the deliverance from the Egyptians, without thinking about the law, without thinking about Sinai, without thinking about the trip to the promised land. It would all be in their minds and in their hearts. And watch how this unfolds. Verse 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. Now, everything's important here. You know, we know that the custom was to recline at the table. They, they would spread cushions around the table. The table was low and they would recline on one arm and eat with the other arm. Uh, you know, but the reason that they did that is because the, the posture of a servant during a meal is to stand. And the posture of the person who's free is to recline. So the fact that they're reclining commemorates the fact that there was a time when they would have been the ones that were standing. 
Now God has set them free. So the original instructions were to eat it standing up and ready to move, but after being given the promised land, the custom became to eat it reclining just to show that they're free. The meal begins. It's quiet. It's an intimate time. The crowds, the crowds are outside. All of the threats and all of the insinuations are not in this room. This time is reserved for Jesus and for those that he loves. It's intimate. In verse 15, and he said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And what Jesus is using here is a familiar Hebrew phrase. He's saying, I have longed for this moment. I have looked forward to having this Passover meal with you. It's the last one before all those things I told you about are going to happen. And what Luke wants us to see is Jesus and the twelve as a group. As as an intimate, united group, an organic entity. United in their calling, united in their purpose, united in their hearts. Mostly. Mostly. In verse 16, Jesus says, For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And the inference here is, He's not going to eat this meal again until its symbolic meeting, the the freedom of God's people, is fulfilled once and for all in the coming perfected kingdom of God. Verse 17, and he took a cup, and when he given thanks, he said, take this and divide it amongst yourselves. And there's a lot of debate over which cup this is. There were four cups in the standard Passover meal. And it's really interesting to look at at what different commentators, what different biblical scholars think about what cup it is, but I think that misses the point. I think it's a lot more simpler than that. The, the thing that Christ is trying to show his followers is that they're all going to share the same cup. Now that's going to be significant in a few short hours in this narrative. We're all drinking from the same cup. The hardships They will all drink of the hardships of being a disciple, but they will also drink of the blessings of the resurrection, the far greater promise than the hardships. Verse 18, Jesus says, For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So he's saying, I'm not going to do this again until the fullness of the kingdom comes. It's a sweet moment. It's an intimate moment. And it is in every way a celebration of who Christ is and what He's come to do. But it turns melancholy. Verse 19, And He took the bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is My body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. He said, every time you break the bread, remember this moment. Remember what's happening right here. The bread, which represented God's provision, takes on an all new meaning for the Jews who are sitting there. It represents Christ's body, which is given, which is sacrificed for you. And for you is plural here. It's for all those who are following Him. Jesus is going to sacrifice Himself. The, the, praise, the praise for you indicates on your behalf, in your place. This is where we get our doctrine of substitutionary atonement from. 
Now, that's a deep theological term, but basically what that means is that Christ died in our place. He just told him that. My body will be broken on your behalf. Sacrifice in your place. You could see the disciples looking at each other. What? And maybe whispering a few things. Is this what he's been talking about? You know, he told us that he had to come here and suffer. Does he really mean that? What about that cup? (laughs) Verse 20, and likewise the cup after he had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you, same phrase, is a new covenant in my blood. And now, now we hear that there's a new covenant. Oh, a new covenant sealed by the body and blood of Jesus Christ. All the sacrifices. All the shed blood for the previous 1,000 years had been pointing to this moment in this upper room in Jerusalem. The old covenant was a shadow of the new. And all the laws, all the ceremonies, all the priests, the tabernacle, the temples, the cleansings pointed towards Jesus Christ and this particular moment. And the melancholy that fills that room then turns to alarm with what Jesus has to say next. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And the disciples, watch this, get a sip of the cup they're about to partake. And it includes betrayal by somebody close and intimate with them. And they began to question one another, verse 23, which of them it could be who was going to do this. So the Passover meal and the institution of the new covenant are only themselves pointers to something else. Something eternal. And we see the new church for the first time in a physical relationship with their Lord and Savior. It's only 12 people. There might have been some more there. But we see what the new church looks like gathered around Christ who's about to sacrifice himself so that that church could go into the world and proclaim the gospel. It's an incredible moment. And what we find out is upon his return, all believers are going to fellowship with him. That's that's what it is. That's what he's trying to tell them. Everybody will be with him physically at his table forever. The Passover meal in the upper room carries with it the promise of his return. And we see this in 1 Corinthians 11.26 For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So it Last Supper. Think about that. Well, well let me go over these, these four significant events again so you can tie them all together. 
the plot. The leaders want to kill Jesus, and this passage makes it clear that even though they plan evil, they are working right into the hands of God. This is part of God's plan. I've got all these details are arranged. It's going to happen exactly the way I said it. Don't worry. God is sitting on the throne. He's in control. Can that be an encouragement for us today? As we watch the world fall down around us? And we cry out to God and say, what are you doing? We don't understand what's going on. The church seems to be in trouble. The, the culture seems to be turning against us. And God is sitting on his throne. And there's no corner in heaven where somebody's going, gee, I wonder if he knew this was happening. Does he look like he's doing anything to you? He's in control. And i got to tell you something. He's in control no matter who the president is. Amen. He's in control no matter what country's angry at us. Amen? He's in control no matter what you're going through right now. Amen. And he's got all the details in his hands. So we should see that in here. There's nothing that escapes God. There's nothing in your life that he's not aware of. Now that can be scary. <laughs> but it should be a blessing. We saw the payment. The most important moment in the history of all mankind revolves around self-interest and money. And I want you to just stay tuned to this narrative to see how that turns out. Yeah. We saw the preparations. The disciples are called to participate. They don't really know everything that's going on. They're just doing what they've been told. But they're being obedient to their Father in Heaven. They're being obedient to their Lord. They participate. They don't know all the details. But God has everything planned and worked out. Boy, I, I don't always do real well at that. I don't know about you. I don't always do what God calls me to do in every given situation. Sometimes I forget that He has all the details worked out. And the outcome of whatever situation I'm in is in His hands, not mine. Oh, I can stubbornly try to wrest control of it from him. But praise God, he's a gracious God and a merciful one. And I survived those times. And we saw the Passover. We get to witness the institution of a new covenant. And as awesome as a new covenant is, listen carefully. There's so much teaching on the new covenant out there right now. It's like it's the end of all things. The new covenant is about me. God wants you happy. He wants you prosperous. He wants you, he wants you, 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 you. The new covenant, just like the old covenant, points to something better. The new covenant is not yet perfect because we're not yet perfect. Yet the new covenant is our promise that there's something better waiting for us. That it's not about us. That it's about God and His faithfulness. It's about God and His holiness. It's about God and His purity. And about God sacrificing His Son so that we could enter into that holiness and that purity and be blessed by that faithfulness. So there's a key passage in this in this, these verses here. And it's, it's verse 18. We, we, we could easily overlook it and miss the significance of it. 
Because Jesus says, For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. That's where Jesus talks about his future. Yet he and his disciples are about to face a very dark hour. I believe he gave them this as a promise so that they would have something to hold on to when everything looked like it was lost. After the crucifixion, you know, the disciples could easily have just given up. They didn't really expect him to die. So he gets crucified, they put him in the tomb, and the disciples could just as easily have just said, you know what, it was all a waste. They didn't know what was going on. They were concerned. Some concerned that maybe they would be next. It would have been easy to forget his words. It would have been easy to forget that he was coming back. So they just did what he told them to do. Wait. Just a simple act of obedience. To wait. And maybe during that time that they were waiting, they reflected back on that time in the upper room and said to themselves, there's more. There's more. You know, my dad, when I thought we couldn't eat any more food, he said, there's always more. I didn't realize my dad was trying to give me a picture of eternity. I don't think the disciples in that room understood that Jesus was giving them a sign of eternity, something to hold on to. This isn't the end of all things. This may be the darkest hour. This may be the hardest thing you've ever gone through. But there's always more. Because that was not the last supper. There's going to be more suppers. For those who believe in him, they will dine in heaven sitting around the heavenly table, celebrating for all eternity, because in Christ there's always more. Amen?